you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney prior to and during questioning. If you can't afford one, the court will appoint one for you. You understand your rights? Warning, each episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast will contain descriptions of acts of violence or of a sexual nature and are for people that are 18 years or older. Heed my warning, people. I do not get the facts of these cases off the internet or from some television show. These facts are I'm retelling were presented to me by the victims of the crime or the perpetrators who committed the crimes. My descriptions of the crime scenes are what I saw with my own two eyes. If you are going to get offended, turn this podcast off now. Thank you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. And as always, I'm your host, Woody Overton. And today we're going to be continuing the episode of What Happened to Jackie. Before we get started, I want to introduce you to another true crime podcast and a friend of Real Life Real Crime. The podcast is the Invisible Choir. For y'all that can't understand my accent, choir meaning being spelled C H O I R, you know, like church choir. So I didn't want you to get it wrong, but it's Invisible Choir and its host is Michael of Jibway and that's O-J-I-B-W-A-Y. And he says his name, he pronounces it just like it's spelled, right? So, but let me tell you something, it's really well done. It's not just a podcast where they're reading about stuff. They actually do investigation angles and it's just going to be big. It really is. It's something that I think everyone will enjoy, true crime fans, especially when you get tired of hearing people reading about other people's cases out of the news. This is the Visible Choir. You need to give it a listen and hold on and let me introduce you to the Invisible Choir, the podcast. Invisible Choir a true crime podcast that explores the most egregious and heinous murders through primary source audio and investigative storytelling. These are the tragic stories of the missing and the dead, their voices reaching out from beyond the grave, seeking peace and yearning for justice. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Go to InvisibleChoir.com to learn more. All right, y'all. That is the promo for Invisible Choir, the podcast hosted by Michael Ajibwe. And he's a really good guy. Y'all look him up on the social media, on Facebook. I try to answer everybody's stuff right and respond to him. And I'm in his group and he's very responsive to his fans. And just, I think that really has something special there. He has a lot of people working with him. I think like three or four people that do everything from the writing to producing to an investigative stuff also. And it's just, it's good stuff. 
uh, go there, join his stuff, check out his social media, give him a like, subscribe to him, and let him know that real life, real crime, the podcast, and Woody Overton sent you. Okay, so uh, I'm going to make some more announcements at the end of the show, so stay tuned for that. Some pretty big announcements, actually, so stay tuned at the end of the podcast. But let's conclude, or hopefully let's conclude. I actually don't know how long it'll go to get done telling it because it's coming out of my head. But let's try to conclude what happened to Jackie. So last week, when I left you, we had returned to Bujo's residence with a search warrant after coming from the hospital and photographing the, I think it was 50, 57 different scratches and bruises, et cetera, that she had to her body. And so we had the search warrant and go and knock on the door and Boudreaux comes to the door. Remember I told y'all one of the things stands out in my mind about him is not only his physique and all that, but those big, thick glasses. And you know the kind I'm talking about. You see somebody, you meet somebody that has that thick of glasses and the big round frames, but they're so thick, they magnify that person's eyes. And when you're looking at them, they kind of look bug-eyed at you. I'm telling you, when he opened that door and he saw me and he saw all the detectives behind me and the cop cars in his yard, his eyes popped big, bug-eyed like that. And I guarantee you, what went through his mind at that moment was sugar had just turned to shit because it was on. So he opens the door. I say, hey, Mr. Boudreaux, we're here. We got a search warrant for your residence and for your body. And he was like, whoa, whoa what's going on? Yeah, I don't understand. And I said, this is the deal. And and then just, you know, we're, let us come in and talk to you and I said, really, you don't have a choice. I said, we're coming in, you know, so we went in and, and Mr. Kearney, remember I told you, Kearney Foster, the chief of detectives, and he had never been out. I'd never been out on the scene with him. And now I wasn't a rookie detective. I've probably been in, I don't know, six or eight months or something like that. And certainly I had worked on some homicides and rapes and different cases, but, and I'd had a lot of success, but I was by no means the senior guy, right? Uh, all the major scenes I'd been out on, Mr. Kearney had never rolled out on one. And for some reason, Mr. Norris wasn't there, and he was our actual chief of the text. Now, Kearney was chief deputy, and that means he was number two. He only answered to the sheriff. So the chief of detectives has to answer to the chief deputy, right? So we have the chief deputy on scene. Now, you got to remember, Mr. Kearney has been doing this like 35 years or something like that, and murders and rapes and whatever. And one of the great things about him was he didn't care if it was a, a burglary or a homicide. He worked at the scene. And I mean, he when he worked something or, or he was involved in something, he hammered the shit out of it, right? So, but like I told you, I have mad respect for him. I still do. I don't care whatever is said about the man. He's simply the most knowledgeable investigator I ever met in my entire life. So we go in, Kearney and it was Chuck, told him to sit down on the couch, and they started talking to him. First of all, they advised him of Miranda rights, and he was like, well, do I need a lawyer? And they were like, are you guilty? And they weren't soft on him from the get-go. They started questioning him. Meanwhile, we're starting to search the residence, but I could hear 
everything that they were questioning about, right? And so they got him past Miranda and the consent to question part. And he said, okay, I'll answer. And he understood his rights. And they start going at him and to get him to tell his story again, first of all. I guess Kearney wants to hear it himself. So he's telling the same story about coming home, checking on her, covers up to her neck, blah, blah, blah. And I go down the hallway. I want to start at Jackie's room. And guess what? I opened the door to Jackie's room. The door was closed. I opened the door to Jackie's room, and it's been stripped clean. No sheets, no blanket, no pillows. And I was like, oh, fuck. And so I go back towards the living room, and I could hear him telling his story. And then at the end of it, Mr. Kearney said, that's really your story. And he was like, yeah, that's my story. And he said, that didn't make any sense. And Mr. Kearney had this finger, one finger like on his index finger. That was kind of, I don't know if he broke it or something bad when he was younger, but it kind of was a little bit crooked. And he started pointing that finger. And believe me, I had it in my face numerous times over the years as he developed me as a detective. And he started with that point that he's like, you know what? That's bullshit. You know, it's bullshit. And he starts ripping into him. And and I went in there. I said, oh, I said, Mr. Kearney, I said, I need to tell you something. And came to the side and told him, I said, all the bedding is gone. And he turned around and he asked him, he said, Mr. Boudreaux, he said, where's all the Jackie's bedding? And he said, what do you mean? He said, I mean, the where's all the bedding that was in the room the day that you found her dead on the floor? And he said, well, I, I got rid of it. He said, what do you mean you got rid of it? He said, did you throw it away? He said, where is it? And he said, no, I burned it. And he said, you burned it. And he's like, why in the hell would you burn it? And I said, I'll tell you why. Because you know you're guilty. And you know you had to do with her injuries and her being in a hospital. And he was like, no, I did no, I didn't. He said, why in the fuck would you burn the bedding? And he said, don't you know that's possible evidence? Oh, I think Chuck said that. Don't you know that's possible evidence? And the guy was like, no, I didn't know that was evidence because there's no crime. Then they asked him, so where'd you burn it at? He said, out back in the burn pile. Of course, they meant we had to go out there and verify that also. But so anyway, I returned to the search that they're ripping his ass. And then going through, there was nothing in Jackie's bedroom. There was no blood. Of course, y'all remember, I had the pictures that I'd taken that day. And I didn't know that I was looking for blood. But certainly, there was no large amounts of blood or anything. And I reviewed those photographs. Before we went over there, I knew what the bedding looked like. I knew what at least the bedding was on the floor when I got there. And I didn't see any blood, not even, I mean, in the photographs I saw. And now that I'm looking at this carpet on the flooring, I'm looking and looking for flashlight and light on center, and it's just not there. And it just further gives a defense attorney the argument that, you know, you wish you had all these scratches and then there should have been some blood there, right? That So somebody did it at, at the hospital when she got there, et cetera. Again, goes back to the doctor keeping us out of the room and me giving in and not pressing forward to getting the examiner, right? So I, I'll never forgive myself for that, but it wasn't my call. So they're going at him. We're searching the residence. And I went to the kitchen area next. Somebody else had already searched the baby's room and 
they were searching like the bathroom and all that. And I went to the kitchen area and I started going through the drawers in the kitchen in like the second drawer down onto the left-hand side of the sink. I opened it and I remembered distinctly what was in it. And I'll tell you why. It was a large Cajun injector syringe with a long metal needle on it. Now, let me tell you what Cajun injector is and why I know so much about it. Cajun injector is a product that was developed by uh, Mr. Edgar Williams, who's actually was my father's best friend. And it was developed from in my hometown. He had a restaurant called The Front Porch, and this man could cook like you wouldn't believe. But what he did was came up with all these different marinades that you could inject into like prime rib or pork roast or whatever. But the big market for it, where it really took off, was for frying turkeys. And so they had this huge syringe. I don't know what milliliters or whatever ounces it was, but it's probably, I use them every year. I mean, uh, for, for Thanksgiving, but it's, it's probably five inches long and maybe a, a big round is a roll of quarters. And, but the needle on it is what's so impressive. It's probably another four inches stainless steel needle and. It's hollow on the inside. It's a big needle. I mean, it's not like a, a needle they draw blood from. It's, I mean, it's made to push a massive amount of liquid into an injection site. So I saw that. I took notice that I was thinking, you know, Mr. Edgar died many years before and the company had been sold and all that since then and everything. But I, it stuck in my head. But I wasn't looking for a Cajun injector needle or any other kind of. I was just looking. We were trying to get lucky on something because it really didn't add up, the scratches and the bruises, et cetera. And so I remember that being there and we went through and didn't nothing else really jumped out at me. But I did notice a couple crosses in the living room. And then I went into Boudreaux's bedroom. Now, at this point, they're really running his ass, all up in his ass about uh, he's lying and it, you don't come home to check on a 20-something-year-old at, at 6 o'clock in the morning after you work out all night. You did this to her. I'll tell you what else we did. Before we went over there, I printed out the pictures from the hospital of Jackie's body and the injuries and printed them out and had them in a folder. And at some point, Mr. Kearney, when the guy, Boudreaux, kept denying, denying, and they were getting more aggressive with him, if you will, and they pulled out the photos and they started slamming them down on the table in front of them. We, we usually do that for shock value to try to shock somebody or to watch their reaction when they see it or try to shock them into breaking them into a confession. And sometimes in, in their mind, the, the killer or, or the attacker doesn't even realize how much harm they've caused. But then you can put down those photographs in front of them and then that kind of shocks them back to their senses like, oh, shit, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to get out of this or I didn't realize I'd done this much damage. And sometimes they have guilt and remorse, whatever. So they're at that point of it. And I go into Bujo's bedroom and there's obvious which side of the bed he slept on and which side his wife slept on. His wife had like hand creams and stuff and like romance novels and just 
chick stuff, uh, wife stuff. And on his side, he had a Bible and it was, it was well worn and it was a thick Bible and he had a cross on his nightstand and the lamp and not much else. So, you know, I'm taking notes of these things. We go on and then somebody else came in and was helping search his bedroom. Oh, he had a TV. He had a small television in his bedroom with the, uh, one of the old ones with the VCR attached to the bottom of it. And younger listeners, you probably don't even know what that is. It was a combo. It was a television with the VCR built into one of it. And I turned on the VCR and out pops a tape and it says beach vacation. And it was, I think it was like 2000 or something like that or 2001 beach vacation. And so I pushed it back in and the screen comes on and turns on. It's on the beach. So I think it was a, like in Biloxi or somewhere because the water was, was dirty. And it's a video of Jackie in a bikini sitting on the beach besides her mom. I, well, I, I would later identify the lady as her mom sitting beside an older woman and they're laughing. And Jackie had on sunglasses, y'all. And I just can't describe the natural beauty this young lady had. Also, I mean, she didn't look like a young lady. She was those street terms. She was built like a brick shit house, right? I mean, she was very, very beautiful and facial features, body development, whatever you want to call it. The showing she was beautiful, but. This video is being taken of them, and he's not talking to them. I assume it's him taking it, or Boudreaux taking it. He's not talking to him, but he's focusing on Jackie's body and the bikini. And I'm like, oh shit! And I'm thinking, and this is the, now the the video was was longer than just the beach scene. There was other things that were on the video when I got back to the office and watched it, et cetera. But it's so it wasn't a coincidence, but. It jumped out at me that when you put the thing into play on a VCR tape, when you put it into play like that on one of those, you hit play, it plays from the last position or the last frame when you turn the machine off. So when the TV VCR combo was turned off, it was at the point of Jackie on the beach being filmed in her bikini. Important? Yeah, I think so. So anyway, I seized that. That was one of the only things I took for the residence, honestly. And then when we went outside to search, he had a shed that was off the ground. It was on cement footers, I guess you call them. They're like two foot extension legs under. It wasn't a big shed, but it was probably a, I don't know, four by eight, something like that. But it was raised off the ground and had wooden steps going in. And it was a maroon color and it needed a paint job. Obviously, it was a homemade shed and not one of those that you can go buy and pay monthly on. But when you went to walk up the steps to go into the shed, the doors open. It's full of stuff. But in the doorway, at the base of the doorway is a can. And never forget it and see it in my mind's eye right now. It's a small metal can. I don't know, like a quart, but more square. It's not round. And with the metal lid, and it's white, and it had blue across the middle of it. And in a white letter, it had acetone. 
acetone. I didn't think anything about it, right? Acetone. Other than sometimes that back then in the red phosphorus method on making meth, acetone was used to wash or uh, the pills and stuff like that. I was thinking, well, maybe that, you know, is, is why the mother's in the hospital with burns. Maybe she was cooking meth, whatever. Didn't think anything else about it. And it was sitting in the doorway, like somebody walking past the shed or something, and it just didn't have time to go in. They just stuck it on, on the doorway. Because remember, I told you it's raised. It was probably two or three feet off the ground. Search of the shed, nothing, right? But that acetone metal thing in the doorway stood out of my mind. And of course, we took pictures of everything, right? I took a picture of the shed from to document it, it later on if we need to put together a layout of the property or whatever in case there's a criminal trial. So then we go back to where the burn pile was. And sure enough, it, I mean, it hadn't been burned that day or the day before. I think it was probably burnt Sunday when we were out there. But there were some remnants left of the comforter and, you know, some foam from a pillow or whatever, but he burnt the shit out of it. I mean, and there was a gas can out there. It was a burn pile. Let me tell you all about that. When you live in the country, for you city folks who don't know, you don't always have trash pickup. So a lot of people will, they have, especially they have property, legal or not, they do burn piles and they take their trash out and they'll burn it. Or when you have property like that with trees on it, et cetera, and storms come through and the limbs fall out of trees, you make a burn pile and you burn all that shit so you don't have to haul it off somewhere. So they had been burning stuff there for a while. It's a pretty good sized burn pile, a lot of remnants and, and leftover junk, if you will. And there was some of that blanket. And of course, we photographed that. That's it though, right? So going, I'm going back into the trailer and they have Boudreaux. I hear them telling Boudreaux, uh, we need you to stand up and take off your shirt. And he was like, what for? And we said, we need to examine your body for any scratches, whatever. He's like, I don't want to do that. And then Mr. Kearney said, oh, you can do it here or you can do it at the jailhouse. He said, but you're going to do it. And he was pointing that finger. And, and it was like, well, he said, I'm telling you, we have a, the search warrant includes for your body for any possible injuries, et cetera. He said, now I can have you brought to the jail in the back of a police car and stuck in a cell. And when we get there, we'll come photograph you or you can simply do it right here. Why won't you do it right here? If you didn't have anything to do with this, then you need to comply. And so Boudreaux hesitantly, but he did it. He took a shirt off and then uh, they looked over him and, and he didn't have any, he didn't have any marks. And then they told him to take his pants off and he, he was not a happy camper, but it didn't matter. He had to do it anyway. Took his pants off and then they had him drop his underwear, his drawers, whatever y'all call them and turn around, et cetera. And he just didn't have a mark on him. And then he puts his stuff back on and he's pissed. I mean, he's red in the face by this point. And I was, you know, I was, being nice to him during that point. I said, Mr. Boudreaux, you just cooperate with him. I mean, the sooner you do it, the sooner we get out of your hair. And it was like, he was just shaking his head, et cetera. And I had been nice to him. I was nice to him the first time we interviewed him. There was no reason for me to go against his ass, go after him. But I'm going to tell you something. Mr. Kearney and Chuck were wearing him out. Only rightfully so. They were going for a confession, right? And they've been doing this forever. And, he kept adamantly denying and the search warrant wrapped up and 
they were still going at him. And I, I always said a good homicide interrogation doesn't really even begin to after like five hours of wearing on somebody that won't confess, right? But we had been there, I don't know, a couple hours, and then they were going on him. And Miss Curry said, I'm going to tell you something. You did this, and you either, you either some kind of accident or you're just a damn sexual monster. And they said, your wife's been in the hospital for three weeks. What were y'all? Were y'all fucking? And, and it got out of hand, and she hit her head or something. And he said, well, you know, you need to tell us what happened. He said, because I'll come back here. I'm coming back with a murder warrant. And you better pray to God she doesn't die. You better pray to God that she lives. And, and he said, are you a praying man? He said, yes, sir, I'm a praying man. I pray every night. He said, I don't go to church, but I pray and I read my Bible every night. And Mr. Kearney said, well, then you better pray to the Lord above that that girl gets a full recovery and can tell us that you didn't rape her or didn't murder her. He said, because when she dies, I'm coming back with a murder warrant. And he finally, he had enough. He said, well, you know what? If y'all ever have everything you need, he said, you need to leave. And they, they didn't let up on it. They started asking more questions. He said, you know what? I want a lawyer. Boom. Shuts it down. And Mr. Kearney and we're like, that's fine. You know, we'll come back. We'll come back with a murder warrant. And you know, y'all get your stuff and let's go. Getting ready to go out the door. And Boudreau was sitting on the couch. I said, Mr. Kearney, I want to have a, just, I said, I just want to talk to Mr. Boudreau for just a second. He said, He's already asked for a lawyer. You can't talk. You can't ask me any questions, Ms. Kern. And I knew I was going to catch shit for it, but I had kind of an aha. I just wanted to run. But the I knew he was going to catch shit for it, but I said, I'm not going to ask him any questions, Ms. Kern. I just want to talk to him, human being to human being for a minute. And he was like, what are you, some kind of pacifist? I don't know. And then I think he kind of picked up on what I was going to do. So when he stepped outside, I said, Mr. Boudreaux, I said, listen, you already asked for a lawyer. I said, so I'm, I sat down across from my hand. I said, I'm not going to ask you any questions. I said, but I said, I'm a huge, huge faithful person and I'm a believer. And I said, I saw the Bible on the side of your bed and it looks well worn. I know you read it every night. And he shook his head. Yeah. He was almost in tears at this point, y'all. And he had his head in his hands and was looking down and I had my hand on his knee. And I said, well, you know what? I said, you need to pray to God. And I said, pray to God that he delivers Jackie or pray to God tonight. And I said, you get your lawyer and do it however you want to. I said, but you've got to come up with an explanation of how she got so injured. I said, it was just you and her. Mama's been in the hospital. I said, I understand that you're saying you didn't have anything to do with it. I said, but if you took yourself out of this, let's say it's a criminal trial and you're sitting on a jury and you look at the evidence that's presented and you look outside looking in, I said, what, I mean, it looks bad for you. And I said, what does it look like? And I said, no, 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 don't answer. I said, I'm not asking you questions. I said, it looks horrible for you. I said, you would get convicted. I said, and even, even if it never made it to a criminal trial, Mr. Boudreaux, I said, they don't, have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt to, to get a murder warrant that says that you killed her if she dies, that you killed her. I said, all that we have to have to get a warrant is probable cause. I said, do you know what the definition of probable cause is? I said, don't answer that because I can't ask you any questions. I said, but I'm going to tell you the definition of probable cause is 50% plus one. I said, and there's way more than if you just take the circumstances of you being here and the way that you called and said she's dead and the way that she said that 
the blanket was to her neck and you check it on her. I said, everything adds up. I said, that's without any DNA coming back on her or anything like that. I said, I said, Mr. Boudreaux, you touch that girl. You got to come up with an explanation. You know, I said, it's the investigation is going to go where it's going to go. And I promise you, those guys want you. And they want, they want to do you. And I look and I said, let me tell you something. Jackie's beautiful. And he was shaking his head. And I said, I, I know that. And they know this. And, and, you know, if it goes before a jury and it's presented like this and they look at you, I said, no offense. But then they look at Jackie. I said, it's going to be bad for you, man. I said, listen, I'm begging you. Pray tonight. And, Come up with an explanation and whether you want to give it through your lawyer or whatever, just come up with something. I said, because the dog that you're hunting with right now, he's not hunting. It just doesn't make any sense. And he started crying. I think Chuck came back to the door and said, come on, Woody, we got to go. The Colonel wants to go. And I'm sorry. So I said, it's just Mr. Boudreaux. I said, just remember what I told you. And I left. We go outside and, and Colonel's like, what did you do? I said, I just played the uh, Jesus angle on him. I said, he had a, a big Bible by his bed and crosses throughout. And I said, just, you know, pray that for miraculous healing and uh, that Jesus gives you some insight on what happened, whatever. And they, they kind of shrug, right? And, uh, not, not thinking that it had a chance in hell working. So Mr. Kearney left and went home and we went, we went back to, well, no, actually, before we left, we were standing there in, in the deal to get a game plan together. Because remember, now it's after hours. And we had the night shift detectives, which were uh, Brian Paul Smith, like I told you about. And I think I think it was Kim McMorris was his partner on nights. And then, but the, everybody else that was there was on overtime. And they were like, okay, what's the plan? really didn't have one right i said I, but you know i said i'd like to go interview the mother and Kearney said good good he said you, you you go uh and he said take you and brian paul go together he said let ken stay in the parish in case they have any detective calls that come in but y'all go to baton rouge and interview her see what she says and then we'll talk about it tomorrow in the office and so I had to get tagged evidence from the uh, search warrant. Y'all, it has to be placed in evidence. And we have to write a search warrant return to the judge of listing what items that we took, et cetera. And then we had to serve him back with a copy. So we had a lot more work to do. But Chuck went home. And again, that's, that's that old school mentality. I mean, you know, let them, let them run and go do it. How many people can interview the mom, right? And it's after quitting time for them. And they've been doing it 25 years. And Mr. Kearney actually didn't live far from where Boudreaux lived. So I think that's probably was one of the reasons that he actually went on that search warrant, other than he was pissed that we didn't get the information we needed at the hospital. But and maybe worried that it's going to turn into a shit show in media or whatever, or, or we might miss out on a homicide investigation. But anyway, so Mr. Kearney went home. Chuck goes home. And Brian Paul and I first went to the sheriff's office and I tagged all the evidence and submitted it and did the search warrant return. And then we drive to Baton Rouge. I rode with him actually to Baton Rouge to the Baton Rouge General Hospital. And we badged our way in to the burn unit and asked to speak to Jackie's mom. And the charge nurse said, 
I asked, first of all, I said, you know, can we're here? I said, her daughter is, is in the intensive care unit in North Oak. She said, really? She said, nobody's been to see her. Nobody's, we, we hadn't heard anything about it. And she said, look, she's pretty messed up. And let's talk about the mom. She's pretty messed up. Her, I mean, her legs were very severely burned. She's on morphine and, and different pain medicines every four hours. I said, she may be awake to talk to you. She may not. I said, but, um, she said, let me go call her doctor because I don't even know if we want you going in there and telling her her daughter is in death's door and whatever. So she called the doctor and, and, and uh, I actually got on the phone. I told the doctor, I said, look, if she doesn't know, she needs to know. I said, this, her daughter's not going to live. And he said, well, I don't know what to tell you. I, I, he said, she's not you know, going to have a heart attack or anything, I don't think. And he says, so I go ahead and tell her. So anyway, we got into the room, Brian, Paul, and I did. And the lady was, I mean, it was kind of burnt flesh. It's kind of just, it's just bad. And I've dealt with it a lot of times in the career. But seeing it like that and with all the ointments and stuff, and it's not covered up, I guess, because they want the air to heal, help heal it. I don't know. But this woman was burnt to shit and from like ankles up to the lower part of her thighs. I mean, it's bad and it has smell that you really don't forget about. But anyway, so we go in and she's hooked up to, you know, the pain machines and the monitors and all that. And, and we had to introduce ourselves and she was like, why are you here? I don't understand. And she was kind of loopy, but she wasn't that loopy. And I told her, I said, listen, and I'm, again, I'm not going to say the family name because I don't know whatever happened to the kid. Oh, but let me tell you all this. The, <laughs> some people commented about what happened to the kid. I should have said that on the first one. And I did ask Boudreaux that the first day when we were there about the baby, where's the baby now? And there was a family friend that lived close by who would keep the kid. And she had came and picked the baby up, uh, the toddler up. And the, the toddler was still there at this time uh, with that family. So anyway, told the mom, said, listen, you know, it's bad news for you. And I said, Jackie is in very serious condition in the intensive care unit in Hammond. And she was like, what? I don't understand what happened. I don't understand. I mean, shit, y'all, this is what Sunday, to Monday, Tuesday. This is Tuesday night. Tuesday or Wednesday. I don't know. It's been several days, right? Before we heard back from the ICU and we did everything. So anyway, she was like, what happened? And we told her that Boudreaux called 911. And et cetera. She said, that son of a bitch never told me anything. And I, da, 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 da. I said, well, y'all, are y'all on speaking terms? She said, yeah, we're on speaking terms. I said, have you talked to him since Sunday? She said, yeah, I talked to him on the phone a couple times. And she said, I know he works a lot, but I mean, why wouldn't he tell me? I said, shit, I'd like to know that myself. I said, can you tell me about Boudreaux and Jackie's relationship? And she said, what do you mean? I said, I'm like, did they get along? She said, yes. She said he adores her. He said he puts her on a pedestal and, and, you know, he said he just, just cherishes her. And I'm thinking, yeah, I bet he does. And so we're kind of kid gloving it and without get telling her about all. She said, I know you got to tell me more. And, then, and I said, I told her, so the doctor said originally he thought it was a drug overdose and that she, he told her she wasn't going to make it. And and that was it. And then we come to find out uh, they put her in intensive care and come to find out that she had a lot of injuries to her. And she said, what do you mean injuries? I said, a lot of bruises and scratches. I said, at that time, we started working it as a criminal investigation. And, and you know, 
it's an ongoing deal. And I said, but we served a search warrant on your residence today looking for evidence. I said, Boudreaux had burned Jackie's, com- Jackie's comforter and pillow and all, you know, all her stuff that was in, in, in the bedroom or on the floor when we were there on Sunday. And she said, I don't know why he would do that. I said, you have a wash machine and dryer. I said, I saw it. I said, I said, does he not know how to wash clothes? She said, he washes his work clothes every other day. And so, you know, we're, I'm gleaning information from y'all, if you will. And then I asked her, I said, let me ask you, Miss So-and-so. I said, Can, what happened to you? And she, she then she came kind of standoffish a little bit. She said, what do you mean what happened? I said, well, I mean, obviously, you've been in a burn unit for three weeks. I mean, you've got bad injuries here. I mean, I, I can see them. I'm looking at them. And she said, well, I was in the backyard, and I was just messing with the burn pile, and uh, I spilled a can of gas, and I got burned up. And then she cut it off. And I was like, I'm not really here questioning about a crime to her, but that shit didn't add up. I mean, because she was burned up. I, I, I just, anyway, I left it alone. So we talked to her about it. We locked her into a tape statement about Boudreaux cherishing Jackie and uh, doting on her and, you know, all the love and attention he showed to her, et cetera. And that he had not called her or they, that they had talked, but he hadn't told her anything about Jackie's being in the intensive care unit uh, or even because he didn't know until we showed up that she was in ICU like that. But even that he had to call 911 and he found her dead in his own words. So we locked her in all that and that's it. And we wrapped it up and we left. You know, Ryan Paul said, man. Doesn't look good, right? I said, nope. And I said, well, you think that she's been in the hospital for three weeks? Maybe they Boudreaux trying to play a house with her. He said, I don't know, man. He said, it sure is interesting, though. You know, so that night I go home. I have OCD, extreme OCD, but my OCD is not where, you know, I'm washing my hands a thousand times a day or checking locks and shit like that. Mine is. My brain gets a hold of something. I can't turn it off. I can't let it go. I fixate on it and it goes over and over and over and over. And I think that's what partly makes me so successful or made me so successful as an investigator and detective, especially in cold cases, is and when you run it over in your head a million times, you're going to come up with ideas and, and things that maybe other people that don't come up with because you run it through your head so many times. But anyway, that... I didn't sleep that night, and I just kept thinking about it over and over again. I wanted to get back at Boudreaux. I said, I just wanted to go be able to sit down. because I, I, When I came at him soft after they'd been at him hard for so long, he started crying. And when I did the Jesus, the you know, you believe in God angle, he jumped all over that, right? And I said, man, if I could just get back to him and tell him, God gave me a dream tonight. I said, God told me, came to me in a dream, you know, and, but I couldn't go. He's got, he's got a, he's got a lawyer, right? He lawyered up. So the next morning I get dressed, I drive into the sheriff's office and the Texas office was upstairs. I'll go in and Mr. Norris was in and he always got there early in the morning. He's drinking his coffee and he said, Hey, bub, you and I got to go down to Kearney's office. I said, Oh, fuck, here we go. He said, he wants to talk to you. And I said, All right. And I'm like, here we go. 
going on the carpet again, and I'm going to get my ass reamed yesterday for going back in and try, trying to talk to Boudreaux or whatever. And, and Norris, he was so cool, man. I mean, you didn't know if you were in trouble or not. I mean, he certainly didn't take anything personal or whatever. And I'll tell you some other stories. I'm going to put up some stories on Patreon about it where we really screwed some stuff up, being like Brian Paul, <laughs> Brian Paul and I did a case one time. We probably should have got fired over, but we did it in good faith. Anyway, Mr. Norris is just a smooth cat. But so we go down. I'm thinking I'm I'm about to get reamed from one end to the other. He's going to tear me up, shoot me up, spit me out. We go in and he had a little secretary's office outside that you had to walk through. And then you go in. Actually, I think his secretary's name was Miss Jackie also, Miss Jackie Lockhart. But you go into his office. They say, y'all come in and uh, shut the door. And he leaned back in his chair and he steepled his fingers under his chin. He said, he said, Woody, he said, Tell me again what, what you said to Boudreaux yesterday. I said, Mr. Kearney, I'm, during the search of the residence, I noticed the crosses, and I noticed the only thing he had on his bedside table was the Bible. It was well-worn. It wasn't there for decorations. And, you know, I said, when I went back in, I asked him, did he believe in God? He jumped all over it. I said, you need to pray to God. God tells you, et cetera. And I ran it down to him. And um, I said, I know he asked for an attorney. I said, there was a couple of times I started to ask him a question and I told him, I said, nope, don't answer that. He said, I can't ask you any questions. I said, basically, I was just trying to get the juice out of him, Mr. Kearney. I said, and the using the things that I saw and observed in the residence, et cetera. And I said, plus y'all been, y'all been digging in his ass. And he kind of smiled and chuckled a little bit about that. And I said, and he said, well, whatever you did, you did something right. I was like, what are you talking about? He said, Boudreaux called this morning and told the sheriff that he wanted to talk to Woody Overton and Woody Overton only. And he said, I just wanted to know what you said. And I said, well, all I did was I went at him soft after y'all had been grinding on him. And he said, now it's hugely important that we talk about what you do when you go back out there. He said, I want you to have a recorder turned on from the time you walk up to the door. I want you to confirm with him that he called the sheriff and asked to speak with you directly. And then I want you to confirm with him that he does not want a lawyer, that you didn't force him or coerce him to give him the statement or call him back, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. And meanwhile, I'm pumped, right? I'm like, holy shit. The, I, I mean, I thought about it all night long. And if I could just have one more shot at him, I just know I could do something. So I go, I go back out there and he, I knock on the door. He opens the door, same clothing description. This time he's like, come on, Mr. Woody, come on, Mr. Woody. I said, I said, Mr. Boudreaux, I said, just call me Woody. I said, I, he said, you know, I said, I'm going to call you, sir, because this is the way I was raised. I said, but, you know, I, I appreciate you, you calling me out here. I said, but the, I said, you're waiving your right to a lawyer. I said, you said yesterday you want a lawyer. He said, I want a lawyer for them other assholes. He said, I want to talk to you. You were good to me. You were good to me on Sunday. You were good to me yesterday. You took the time to talk to me and talk to me about God. And he said, and I, I said, I want to talk to you. I said, I, I understand that. I said, but, but I need to advise you your rights. 
And so I did it. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be just against you to court law. You have a right to an attorney prior to endure a question. Can't afford one court. Point one four, do you understand? He said, yes, I understand my rights. I said, you know, I said, I, I didn't do anything to coerce you to call on the sheriff. He said, I called the sheriff on my own. He said, I told him that I wanted to talk to you because you were good to me. And I, I remember something. I said, okay. I said, and you don't want a lawyer. No, I don't want a lawyer. I said, I threatened you or promised you anything. No, you haven't. And I said, all right. He said, well, he said, let's go out on the back porch. And he said, you want some iced tea? And I said, sure. So he went in the kitchen, made us some iced tea, like we're butts, right? And he comes out, and there's two rocking chairs on the back porch, which look out towards that shed and the burn pile and the woods on either side. And we sit down. And he starts rocking back and forth a little bit, and he's taking a sip of his tea, and I'm just sitting there. I'm waiting on him to talk. I'm not going to start it. And, and he said, well, he said, Mr. Woody. I said, no, just call me Woody, Mr. Boudreaux. I said, Woody. He said, I thought about it all night last night. I said, I, said, I thought about it too, Mr. Boudreaux. And he said, well, I know how she got those injuries. I said, yes, sir. And tell me how. He said, well, you see, that night, she called me, being that Saturday night, she called me and asked me because she had friends over for a party, and I told her no, and so she was mad at me. I said, okay. And um, he said, I believe she went out there in the woods over there and was, was getting some limbs out of a tree to start a fire because she liked to be around fire. I'm thinking, what is this, a fucking family of pyromaniacs? You know, moms burn up and shit, and he burns up the potential evidence, and now he's saying Jackie like fires also. But anyway, he said, so she went out there and got a hold of this big limb that's hanging in a tree, and it fell on her. And that's what caused all those bruises and scratches. And he kind of looks at me, and he's sitting to my left, uh, and we're facing forward, right? And he's, he kind of, he's looking at me to the right. I'm kind of looking at him and I'm looking at his big glasses and I'm rocking. And I said, well, Mr. Boudreaux, I said, you and I both know that's not true. He's like, no, no I, I could take you out there and show you the limb. I said, no, I don't need to go see the limb. He said, why not? I said, well, guess, guess what? I said, I prayed last night before I went to sleep. I said, and God came to me in my sleep. I said, it gives me goosebumps right now, Mr. Boudreaux. I said, you will not believe this because I'm telling you, God came to me in my sleep and told me that you were going to call for me to come out here today. And he told me that you were going to try to lie to me. And he told me that you were going to tell me the truth. And he said not to accept your first lie. That would you be in self-preservation and in denial of of whatever sin it is that you need to confess. And he was, his eyes got kind of big. I said, Mr. Butcher, I'm not lying to you. I said, I'm telling you the truth. I know God told you to call for me. I said, I didn't know how I was going to get back out here because you had a lawyer. I said, I get to the office and they call me down. I think I'm in trouble. And guess what it is? You called the sheriff to bring me out here to talk to you. I said, that's exactly what God told me in my dream. I said, so you know what? I know you're lying because God told me you were going to lie. The first thing you said. And then he started, his eyes just got really big. I said, so guess what? You need to tell me, man, 
I said, you need to tell me what really happened. I reached across and I put my hand on his arm. I said, Mr. Boudreaux, I said, I'm not a bad guy. I said, those other guys, they want to do you, man. They want to put you in, in, in prison for the rest of your life or send you to the electric chair or you know, the death penalty. I said, your time is not your friend. I said, we got to get it out in whatever it is that happened. I don't believe you're a monster. Yeah, I said, whatever it is that happened, it can't be undone, Mr. Boudreaux. I said, and guess what? When we went back out there that day, we took DNA swabs on every single one of those scratches and bruises. And we had a sexual assault nurse come out and do a rape kit on her. And, and, and he was just, I mean, the color was raining out of his face. I said, so that DNA, takes a little bit of time. And I said, it's not like on TV where they get it back in an hour. It might take a couple of weeks, but it's coming back. I said, Mr. Boudreaux, let me ask you something. You said there was, you didn't touch her. You didn't touch her that day, the morning when you came in, she had the blankets up to her neck. You didn't touch her when she was on the floor. You didn't try to do any kind of CPR or anything else. I said, Mr. Boudreaux, you know, I said, your DNA going to come back on her? And he, he just, he couldn't say anything. I said, okay. Then I said, let me ask you this. I said, you're not answering tells me my answer that it is. And I said, but let me keep on talking to you. I said, let me ask you this. I said, don't take offense at it. I mean, Jackie's a beautiful girl. Your wife has been in the hospital for three weeks. I said, you're still a young, healthy man. And you have sex desires. I said, we, everybody that you look at on the face of this earth got is here because two people had sex, right? And he shook his head. I said, is there any reason your sperm would be inside of Jackie? He said, not inside of her, not inside of her. And I was like, got you now, motherfucker. And I said, okay, okay. I said, I said, did you wear a condom? And he was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I said, no. I said, listen, I asked me, uh, so I want you right now ask me, Mr. Boudreaux, is there any reason, Woody, that your sperm would be inside of Jackie? He said, well, is there any reason your sperm would be inside of Jackie? I said, hell no. I said, you saying not inside of her uh, um, or shouldn't be or whatever, I th- that tells me. I said, now let me tell you this. I said, if you wear a condom and, yeah, I, you, and you're thinking that you just pulled out and you ejaculated on her, and, and I said, if you didn't wear a condom, then you know about pre-cum. I said, that's the sperm that comes out of your penis before, while the actual act is going on, before you pull out and ejaculate, there's plenty of pre-cum, Mr. Boudreaux. I said, that's there. And he said, no, no, not, not inside of her. I said, okay, there's the flip switch question is, you're adamant it's not inside of her. But I said, but you said not inside of her. If you hadn't done anything to Jackie, your answer would be, no way in hell, I didn't touch her, da 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 And he's hung his head, and he's actually teared up a little bit. I said, so you are telling me, without telling me, that your sperm, there's a high probability that your sperm is on Jackie's body. And he started crying. And what, what he didn't know is, what I knew, is that they had washed all the sperm. They have given her a full body washed down and the chances of her having any DNA on her were slim to none, right? I didn't tell him that. Now, um, he starts crying. So I go in for him. I said, listen, God told me to tell you 
tell me. I said, you know that. And I, you know you believe in God. And I said, we're all sinners. And he gave his son to die on the cross for you. And he starts, he's rocking back and forth like in a, a, trying to soothe himself, not, a, not in a rocking chair. And his head's in his hands. I'm going for the juice. I said, Boudreaux, I said, it's understandable. I said, she's beautiful. And, and, and you get horny in the mornings. You come in from work. You, I said, did you open the door? And maybe uh, she was naked in the bed. And, and he shook his head. And I said, did you open the door? And maybe you were turned on. Or maybe you were in your room masturbating to that videotape of her in the bikini. And boy, his head jerked up. And he looked at me. I said, that's right. I know. I said, then wherever you were masturbating to and maybe the impulse became too much um and and you just had to go see her in person i said because that video stops right when she's been on the beach and you're videoing her without her knowing it from the side and his eyes got big i said so were you masturbating to the video and then you just wanted to go maybe peek through the door and and finish it off uh and he was like, I mean, he really is white, white, white now. He says, I'm going to tell you the truth. I said, okay, please do. And he said, the truth is I was masturbating to her. And he said, and I did go down. And he said, and I opened the door and I went in and he said she was in the bed. I said, were the covers up to her neck? He said, no. And he said, she had the covers off of her. I said, what was she wearing? He said, a pair of panties and a, and a shirt with no bra. I said, okay. I said, what'd you do? I said, Boudreaux, I said, don't stop now. I said, you're almost home. And I said, you're, you're putting a reasonable face as to why your sperm is going to be on her. Cause when that sperm comes back on her and she dies and you don't do it, get out in front of it, you going it's, it's going to be bad, Jack. And when the jury gets a hold of it and look at that beautiful young lady, he said, I know. I said, I'm telling you the truth. He said, so I went in and, um, he said, I was still erect and I was masturbating and he said, and I started to touch her and, and he said, I just kind of nudged her. She didn't move. She was sleeping hard. She was snoring a little bit. And he said, and I touched her. I said, what'd you do? And he said, well, I was just, I was just masturbate her over. And I said, okay. I said, let me ask you this. I said, if she's knocked out and you're standing there and you're masturbating over her, I said, if it was me. I want to see this titties. And, and I said, I'm going to lift that shirt up. And if she starts to wake up, I'm going to run out of the room. I said, but is there any reason that your DNA would be on her nipples? I said, now, I don't know what you know about DNA, but there's two kinds, the touch kind and the spit kind. I said, if it was me, I'm going to at least try to pinch her nipples while and feel her breast. While I'm doing it, I said, I said, but if I can get away with it, I'm certainly going to suck on it. And he was like, yeah, yeah. And then I said, so, you know, I said, you have to tell me. And I said, I'm not telling your story. I wasn't there. You tell me. He said, yeah. He said, she didn't wake up, man. I figured she must have been really messed up from pills the night before. She didn't wake up. And I lifted the shirt and I, I, I played with, with her, with her breast and, and, and I, I licked him a couple of times. I said, all right. I said, and I said, did you put your penis inside of her? He said, no, no, absolutely not. I said, okay, what about your fingers? And he stopped and he hesitated. I said, see, Mr. Boudreaux, I said, when you don't answer me, you're already giving me your answer. I said, so you fingered her. And I said, the, the DNA is going to show. And he's like, 
I said, is there any reason your DNA would be inside her? He said, yeah, I, I fingered her. And I said, so you basically rubbed her all over and masturbated her? He said, yeah. I said, and I said, did you, you ejaculated on her? And he said, yes. And I said, what did you do? And he said, I cleaned it up with um, uh, tissue out of the bathroom. And he said, and I flushed it all. And he said, I swear to you, though, he said, I covered her back up and I went to bed. And I'm like, oh, fuck. I said, so I said, Boudreaux, I said, what about the injuries? He said, I don't have any idea how she got those injuries. He said, I'm telling you, I didn't see them and I don't know. And I said, why would you say she was dead when she was on the floor? He said, because she looked like she was dead. And, you know, I, I, at this point, he's fucked. All right. I got him. At least I got him to change his story. And, you know, I think and I'm making some kind of saving grace on on the murder case. Right. Uh, even if it's circumstantial, if she dies and he's changed the story, he admits to playing with her boobs and her breast and licking on her nipples and fingering her and masturbating on her. He admits that he came on her, he ejaculated on her. And all that, I'm like, I got your ass now, motherfucker. And the bruising and stuff, it is what it is. I mean, so I didn't press him too much further. And I said, all right. I said, okay. I said, and you burn the bedding because you, your sperm might have been on it or, or what? And he said, yeah, that's right. And he said, I, I burned all that shit. And he said, and he's crying now. And I said, well, you know what? It's okay, man. It's okay. And I'm patting him on his back. I said, God told you, to, you know, to tell me. And God told me that you were going to tell me. And I said, it's okay. And I said, but and I said, do you have anything you want to add or take away from your statement? He said, no. I said, well, guess what? I need you to stand up. And he stood up and he's looking at me. I said, now turn around and put your hands behind your back. I said, you're under arrest. He said, what for? I said, for a sexual battery at the very least. He said, what do you mean? I said, you know. I said, God didn't say he was going to make it easy on you when you told me the truth. I said, you know what you did was wrong. And and I said, you lied in the beginning, et cetera. I get that. And But it's, it's much better for you to go in on a sexual battery charge than it is for you to go in on a murder charge. And meanwhile, I'm thinking they're going to do your ass for murder anyway if she dies. And so I kept him on a, tried to keep him on a friendly basis. He said, well, let me lock my house and da-da-da-da. So I did, and then I called it in. You know, I put him in the back of my, my unmarked unit. And I called it in. And said three six one, or actually, I was two zero one was my call sign at the time. I said two zero one two five nine. I'm ten fifteen. One white male, ten nineteen to jail, which means I'd arrested one white male, and I was en route to book him at the jail. So fast forward, I book him in on the on the sexual battery charge, not rape. I, I think I might have charged him with right to begin with, but I knew they were going to drop it down. So, but regardless, I booked him. And, and I go in and go in and get Norris, and we'll go down to Kearney. And I told him, I said, listen to this. And, and, and told him what happened and how I got him to confess and played the tape. I guess they wanted to make sure I didn't really, really overstep the bounds. And I didn't. I mean, there's no law that says you can't lie to somebody when you're interrogating them. And, but I think Mr. Kearney, you know, he wasn't one to give out praise easy or whatever, right? But he told me, he said, you did a good job, boy. You did a good job. And he said, well, what? We'll have to wait 
until the girl dies and, and do the autopsy and proceed from there. So I'm over an hour, but I, I know y'all don't want a cliffhanger on what happens for next week, but it's just going to have to. We're going to have to go one more week, y'all. It's a lot, a lot more to it. So I'm going to conclude it for this week, and I promise you I'll finish what happened to Jackie next week and you need to stay in because it's it gets crazier you won't believe what actually happened and for now or ever don't let me catch you down on murder by you and i'm woody overton your host of real life real crime the podcast peace who all right y'all i want to do some uh shout outs real quick and they're important and they're necessary. Um, we got a lot of new patrons this week, and I'm so very appreciative of it, y'all. It really, really helps to offset some of the costs of the show. And it's, I, I, it's not that I appreciate patron fans any more than regular fans. I love all of you. I, I really do. And I understand most people uh, are, you know, can't afford to donate or whatever. And it's a free podcast. You don't have to. But it's, but I am going to always take the time to acknowledge. Uh, the patron members because they took the time to go in and pledge or uh, to support real life, real crime, the podcast. And, and they, they get it, you know, you get bonuses. And when you're patron members, we have episodes locked up that y'all, the general public will never get to hear unless we choose to release them. And a matter of fact, we're releasing another one uh, today, a full length episode. But so that you get a benefit. If you're not a patron member, Check it out. I mean, there's all different levels that you can do, and you get something for every level of, of pledge to support us. So, but let me start with Miss Bethany Abair. Now, it's so funny, Bethany, <laughs> that you you hyphen out hyphenated out your last name. Uh, um, I guess you thought I would get it wrong, but remember, I'm from South Louisiana, and I know Abair is a good strong cajun name so but i guess other people probably call you herbert or something like that miss bethany a bear you are charged with loitering and i appreciate you and your sentences you're a lifer now miss casey lavender casey your charge is harassment and you're under arrest and i appreciate you and you are a lifer now. Thank you so much, Casey. And Mr. Chad Hayes, your charge is disturbing the peace, Chad. And your sentence is your life for now, buddy. And I appreciate you. And Miss Jenny, no last name or other information given. Miss Jenny, your charge is vandalism. Miss Jenny, I appreciate you supporting me through Patreon. And then we have Miss Joyce Ferris. Miss Joyce, your charge is disturbing the peace. You're under arrest. I'm going to go ahead and sentence you to be a lifer of real life, real crime. I appreciate you, Miss Joyce. And Stephen Kirkpatrick. Stephen, your charge is vandalism. You're under arrest, buddy. And I'm sentencing you to being a lifer. And I appreciate you so much. And Mel Wallace, your charge, Mel. And I don't know if you're male, M-E-L, if you're a female or a male. But either way, you're under arrest. 
in your charge is harassment. And I'm going to send it you now to being a lifer. And I really do appreciate you. Thank you so much. It means a lot. In Jennifer Anglace, A-N-G-L-A-C-E, Jennifer, your charge is disturbing the peace. You're under arrest and your sentence is your lifer now. Thank you, Jennifer. And Marlene Smith, your charge is disturbing the peace. Marlene Smith, I appreciate you. Your sentence is you are a lifer now. Thank you so much. Lindsay Baker, Lindsay, you're under arrest for disturbing the peace. And your sentence is you're a lifer now. And I appreciate you, Lindsay. Thank you for being a patron member. And that's all that I'm going to do for now, y'all. And the rest of your patrons, I did some of the new ones last week. I promise you, you'll get your monthly shout out next week's episode. And it will absolutely be the conclusion and the finale of what happened to Jackie. Um, I appreciate your patron members. It just really means a lot. And y'all, if you're not one, give it a look and and see uh, the benefits and stuff like that. And we've got some really big stuff coming up patron wise and have some really big announcements coming up in the next couple of weeks about real life, real crime, something that's going to blow y'all's mind. Uh, I don't want to let the cat out the bag until we do it, but it's going to be an original to all the lifers out there, all the fans of real life, real crime, all you listeners. If you can't be a patron member, it's totally cool for me. I appreciate you listening. Um, I would ask that you would like and share the podcast, share it with your friends. That's, that's how we're growing. It's how we're so big in six months and made the finals in two categories for the people's choice awards, right? It's y'all telling other people and sharing it in the Facebook groups and telling your friends. And but look, if you would, Please go to iTunes. Even if you don't listen from iTunes, you can go to iTunes and click on Real Life, Real Crime and and submit a review. Y'all listened to me last week, evidently, because we jumped by like 80-something reviews uh, more this week. It, I don't know what the algorithm is, but it helps you when people go in and search on the Google or Safari or whatever. For some reason, it helps, and I don't know because I'm not a computer guy, but it helps bring up the um real life real crime faster and helps more people find us it's not a vanity thing i don't care if you live a one star or five star it's just simply something to do with how quickly we're found and and, and how quickly we grow so i appreciate y'all each and every one of you if you like us and share us and tell somebody else about us and you know just check out all our social media three facebook pages the regular one and then the Lanyap page where fans get to share ideas, et cetera, and things they like. And then, of the course, the real life, real crime, friends, fans, and crew page. It's a private page, and there's a reason it's private, and that's to keep out trolls and dumbasses. And the, so you have to ask to be admitted to the group, and it's no big deal. We don't make you do security questions or anything like that like other shows do. Our moderators, the dream team is simply going to take a look at your profile and make sure 
it wasn't recently created or whatever. You're not a troll and we'll get you approved. But if you like real life, real crime, you need to check it out. Tons of stuff. We interact with the fans on there every day. The dream team is amazing. I love y'all. And that's it. I'm well over an hour now. Um, and I guess I'll wrap it up, but I'm going to tell you something. I plan on the Friday after Labor Day. We're going to drop a bombshell. And I'm so, so, so excited. And as, as excited as you can be about a horrible, horrible tragedy. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop that on y'all the Friday after Labor Day. So that'll be two weeks from tomorrow. And it's going to be something that's going to change real life, real crime, the podcast uh, forever. Anyway, thank y'all for listening. Peace. to remain silent anything you say can and will be against you in a court of law you have a right to an attorney prior to and during questioning if you can't afford one the court will appoint one for you you understand your rights <laughs>